I invite you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 today in our continuing study in this Old Testament book, which we've entitled The Game of Life. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find today's scripture portion on page 650, Ecclesiastes 5, and we're looking at the first seven verses of Ecclesiastes 5. Now, we found this book to be very contemporary sounding in its message, in the sense that it speaks to many of the dilemmas and situations and questions that seem to strike at the heart of this uh, 21st century world. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it that this book, which was written uh, around 3,000 years ago, uh, could be so contemporary in its tenor and flavor. And we've discovered that the theme of this book was set out right in chapter 1, in the first 11 verses, and Solomon, Quohelet in Hebrew, the preacher, uh, tells us what his thesis is, and it is simply this, that a life lived apart from God, you will discover in the end, a life lived apart from God will be empty, will be unsatisfying, will be unfulfilling, futile, and even at some points may be even despairing. Now that's the thesis that he lays out in chapter 1. And then he begins to support that main thesis and carries it all the way through the book. And throughout the early chapters of Ecclesiastes, and in chapters 1 and 2, The preacher tells us about all the many routes that one can take to find fulfillment and and satisfaction. He gives the example of the wise and learned individual who tries to find satisfaction in learning and in intellectual pursuit. And he says that if you do that apart from God, you will end up being even more despairing and life will be even more grievous than if you had not been reflective about life at all. Then he speaks of other ways of finding satisfaction and fulfillment. He talks about sensual pleasure. And he said, I had all the resources at my disposal, more than anyone could imagine. I had women and wine and song. But I need to tell you that a life lived for just sensual pleasure, a life lived apart from God, is meaningless and has no lasting satisfaction. So having tried wisdom and pleasure, he talks about the attempt to find pleasure and satisfaction in work or in career, in vocation, in seeking to be the best in your particular field, whether it's investing yourself in some grand social, political, governmental, or moral quest. The preacher says, no matter what way you may take, if you do it apart from God, you will find no fulfillment, and no lasting purpose. You'll remember in chapter 3, in that classic passage that is so familiar to us, he gave the first positive message, I think, in this entire book. And he says that one of the great keys to experiencing satisfaction and meaning in life is to recognize and to embrace the good providence of our God who is over everything, who is sovereign above all. And and that beautiful passage that there's a time for this and a time for that is part of Solomon's argument for seeing life simply not from the perspective of 
uh, life under the sun on this horizontal plane, but rather lifting our eyes up heavenward and living under the merciful, gracious, and loving hand of our sovereign God. And then last week in chapter 4, we looked at kind of a somber, somewhat depressing passage that looks at life and explores some of the injustices and oppression that continue to exist in this life, in this fallen world. And in it all, Solomon is saying one simple thing. Slice it any way you want, but you will discover that a life lived apart from God will be absolutely meaningless and will supply no lasting satisfaction. Now that leads us to our text for today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And the topic here that he deals with in the first seven verses is the issue of worship. That is our approach to God in worship. And here we have Solomon taking another walk through his kingdom And this time he walks through the Old Testament temple in the holy city of Jerusalem and he makes some empirical observations. He observes the people of Israel in the midst of their worship of Jehovah God. And he sees people worshiping God. But instead of worshiping them, worshiping God with pure hearts, apparently Solomon detects detects a sense of hypocrisy and emptiness even in their worship. And Solomon says here, and and really the, the simple point he's making in these first seven verses is this, that when we come to worship God, we need to be sure, doubly sure, that we are worshiping not only the right God, but that we're worshiping Him in the right way. Solomon says, when you gather for worship, you need to make sure that God, this holy, righteous, majestic God, that God is the focal point of your worship and not man. Now, obviously, we benefit from a worship experience. But when we worship, folks, the spotlight needs to turn from us and our needs When we gather for worship, the focus of our worship should be on our holy God. And I believe that in our contemporary age, that we've gotten that wrong. We've gotten it backwards. Such that so much of our worship today seems to me, in my humble opinion, seems to me to be much more man-centered than it is God-centered. So that when we come to worship, we come, or at least we should come, with our focus on God, to worship God, to ascribe worth to Him. The very word worship comes from the Old English, worthship, which means to ascribe worth or value to someone or something. That's what we're doing when we worship. We are here to to not only offer our sacrifice of praise, but to declare that God is worthy of our worship and our allegiance. A.W. Tozer, a great prince of preachers in the Christian Missionary Alliance, said this, that worship is nothing 
less or nothing more than responding to all that God is with all that I am. Let me say that again because it's so very good. Worship is responding to all that God is with all that I am. That's what worship is about. Now, clearly, there are two forms of worship. From a Christian point of view, there is true worship, that is, worship that is done in spirit and in truth, the kind of worship that Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well about in John chapter 4, where, he, where Jesus says to her that, that God is looking for a, kind, a special kind of worshiper, worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's true worship. But there's also false worship. False worship is not worshiping either the right God or not worshiping Him in the right way. Now let's acknowledge the fact that all of us, every last one of us, worships something or someone. Everyone worships. Everybody, everywhere. Worship is the fundamental drive of life. It is hardwired into our, our human body and system. Such that atheists worship and infidels worship and skeptics worship. Even Republicans and Democrats worship. Lawyers and insurance agents and IRS agents worship. All people in humankind worship because worship is fundamental to our being. And worship is the fundamental difference, I think, between human beings and the animal kingdom. Animals don't worship. My English setter, Sadie, looks at me with loving eyes. She's glad when I throw her a bone or take her for a walk. But she does not worship me. She does not ascribe worth to me. Animals don't have a sense of the beyond. There's no awareness of that holy other. But that's not true for humankind. Why? Because Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And we are hardwired to worship. And this urge causes uh, men and women everywhere to worship. And if they're not worshiping the true God, then they are worshiping a God of their own composition and conjuring. Therefore, worship is a, a universal thing. Now, if you look at the first seven verses of chapter 5, it seems to me that the target that Solomon, the preacher, has in mind here is the individual who comes to worship with a fairly uh, mundane, routine attitude. Comes to worship to listen to the tunes he likes. Taps his foot along with the music. Moans about the songs he doesn't like. Listens with half an ear to the message is distracted by many things, but never, never gets down to what he should be doing in worship. Solomon has in mind here, and remember, he's looking at the temple worship in the Old Testament in Jerusalem. He has in mind here the notion of a worshiper who has misplaced any thought of God and who God really is. Has forgotten how holy God is and how worthy He is of our worship. 
And apparently in Solomon's days, as happens sometimes in our age as well, worship in Solomon's day had become rather trite and stale. People were coming to the the, the temple, to the house of God, uh, and they were gathering there just like they would gather at any other place in, in, in a restaurant or a bar or in the marketplace. They had come not to worship God, but they'd come to, to hear, to sit, to talk, to leave. And it seems that as Solomon observes the Old Testament worship, he sees men and women coming to this great temple that took 153,000 men and seven years to build. And they come with their required sacrifices and offerings. But Solomon observes that when they come to worship, they come with a mechanical attitude toward worship and that their worship had become nothing more than just empty ritual. That is to say that they were doing all the right thing. But they were doing the right things with the wrong motives. Or you could say that they'd come to the right place, but they'd come with the wrong attitude. And because their hearts and their motivations were misaligned, their worship ended up being, just like all of life under their sun, their worship had ended up being meaningless and vain. And would we not have to admit that we see a lot of ourselves in this today? How often, friend, is our worship experience not much more than a critical analysis of how the preacher preached or whether or not the music was to our liking or how many minutes we went over the appointed time or debates about musical style, be it contemporary or traditional or blended. Or it was too hot or it was too long or it was too warm or it was too boring. Perhaps Evelyn Underhill was absolutely right when she wrote to a group of English clergy in 1928 and said, we are drifting, in 1928, we are drifting toward a religion which consciously or unconsciously, keeps its eye on humanity rather than upon deity. A worship that is man-centered rather than a worship that is focused on God. May I kindly remind us that when the people of God come together for worship, it is not about us. It is about God. We've come to offer our sacrifice of praise to Him. And I believe that the evangelical church today is very prone to this trap, that we have become very man-centered rather than God-centered. And the reason we've done so is that we've fallen prey to the consumer mentality that surrounds us. And so we approach church and we approach worship and our worshiping life together like a consumer, taking this and taking that. I like this, but I don't like that. And if uh, the cafeteria doesn't have what I like, 
then I go to a different cafeteria because they're offering up things that, that please me more. And what happens in that, in this consumer orientation, in this man-centered approach, is that we tend to turn everything back on ourselves. We focus on our needs, our problems, our ministry programs, our methods, our efforts, our sermons, our songs, our books, our churches, our organizations. And somehow in all of that talk about us, we lose sight of the fact that when we come to worship, we are called to be conscious of God far more than we are to be conscious of men. So may I ask this morning, what fuels your desire to come to this place and worship each Sunday? What drives you to sing songs? To listen to a long-winded preacher? To give money and put it in the offering plate? Do you do this because you love God, because your heart hungers so much for God that you are compelled out of a deep affection for, for God to be, in the words of Charles Wesley, to be lost in wonder and love and praise? Or do you come to this place because that's what you do? That's where I should be. It's all too easy, I think, to come to church on Sunday morning and, and act the part of the Christian for a couple of hours to do the religious thing. But I would say with all kindness and sincerity, if that's why you're here, it's empty and it's meaningless. Friends, may I remind you that your life as a follower of Christ is not just about what you do here in this building on Sunday morning for two hours. But your life as a follower of Christ is much more about how you live your life the other 166 hours of the week. And that you can't be a guy who cusses his wife out throughout the week and then pop into the pew on Sunday morning and worship God. That, that's being double-minded. That's a fountain that's spewing both sweet and bitter water. You can't do it. You can't be a woman that dishonors your husband by making him look foolish by your careless behavior, then come to church and put on an Academy Award performance on Sunday morning. Just can't be. There's something missing in that equation. And so Solomon, seeing it in his day, this empty, ritualistic, mechanical attitude toward worship, gives them five commands. And I, wa I want to go through them very quickly because of our limited time this morning. The, the first thing he says is, when you come to worship, you should guard your steps as you go to the house of God. He begins with a strong exhortation. In fact, you ought to put an exclamation point behind that first exhortation. What he's saying is this. When you go to a worship service, you ought to be on the alert. You ought to be standing ready. Don't be dull. Don't be thick-headed. Don't be drowsy. But instead, stay awake. Sleep later this afternoon. Right now, stay awake. 
Because when the people of God gather together, and God by His Spirit is present, something should happen. Be, let's be frank, though. Because we, we don't guard our steps. And because we isolate our worshiping life to just two hours on Sunday morning, often we come ill-prepared to worship God. Because our minds have been everywhere but on God. We don't do anything to prepare for our worship experience. We show up at the place of worship exhausted from the week that's just passed. Or we arrive at church to worship. We're irritable. We're out of sorts from the challenge of getting the kids fed and dressed and here to church on time. Especially because we lost an hour last night. Or we come to worship and we're distracted by all the tasks that we know that will face us tomorrow morning when we punch in. And sometimes we come to worship not so much to worship God, but we come with a motivation to catch up with our friends and see how they're doing. Solomon says, don't do that. When you come to worship, guard your steps. Pay attention. Be on the alert. When you enter the house of God, when you come to worship this mighty, majestic, holy God, be alert. Friends, there should be such a sense that when we come together as the people of God to worship God, that we are standing on holy ground, handling holy things, that God is truly among us. What a staggering thought that God is in our midst. But let's be honest, most times we fail to appreciate and value what happens when the family of God gathers for worship. And instead of standing on tippy toes before the mysterium tremendum of this holy God, we come with a rather ho-hum, yawning mentality. As Douglas McCullough says about much of our worship today, Reverence and awe have often been replaced by a yawn of familiarity. The consuming fire has been domesticated into a candle flame, adding a bit of religious atmosphere perhaps, but there's no heat, there's no light, blinding light, no power for purification. We've got the candles to add a little religious atmosphere, but no fire of the Holy Spirit. And sadly, I've watched many Christians lose that sense of being lost in the wonder of God. They had it once when they were amazed by God's grace, when they were first found and redeemed. But now it's gone. Life grinds on monotonous, monotonously for them, and church attendance becomes pretty much rote behavior. And we, we slip into the pew and no preparation and mindlessly we sing the songs and we listen to a sermon and we greet a few people with handshakes and smiles and then we get on to the most important part of the Sunday. Where are we going for lunch? But when we guard our steps, 
we live in a way that demonstrates that we are true worshipers of God, not just for two hours on Sunday morning, but worship becomes a part of our lifestyle in the day-to-day living of our lives, claiming to believe in our mind and feel in our heart what we believe about this mighty God who's worthy of our worship. And there should be, my friends, when you live worship as a lifestyle, there should be no distinction between your language. Listen to me. There should be no distinction between your language and your behavior on Sunday morning than the way you speak and behave the other six days of the week. There should be no need for cleaning up on Sunday morning that wasn't already occurring throughout the week. So here's the question I pose to you this morning. Are you living Monday through Saturday as a true worshiper of God that is consistent with your practice on Sunday morning? If not, who do you think you're fooling? You may fool me. You may even fool your brothers and sisters and your family. But you will never fool God who looks on the heart. Guard your steps. Command number two, draw near and listen. Go near to listen, Solomon says, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Draw near to listen. What are we listening for? We're listening for God to speak. I think that the most important part of our worship service, what we've done here in worship today, the most important part of this service as it was designed was were the moments when Pastor Dave stood here and read the Word of God. We should be standing with rapt attention to what God wants to speak to us through His Word. And my fear is that so much of our worship has become so very man-centered and experiential that we have taken the truth out of worship that is done in spirit and in truth. God speaks to us in His Word. And the same Spirit that dwells in you and me as followers of Christ is the same Holy Spirit that inspired the pages of this Bible that you hold in your hands. But sadly, in many churches today, the preaching of the Word has taken a backseat role to a place of just perfunctory obligation. And what we really want when we come to worship is to be entertained and titillated. God have mercy on us. The most important part of our gathering is to hear what God has to say to us through His Word. So then preaching, I think, should, and not just because I'm a preacher, I would say this if even if I weren't a preacher, preaching should be part of the lifeblood of our worship experiences. Is that not what Paul meant when he says, and how shall they hear? Without a preacher? Regrettably, though, so much of preaching in modern pulpits has become more about us and less about God. In fact, seminaries are training young preachers today to plan their messages in three seven-minute segments for a total of 21 minutes. You can tell that I wasn't trained that way. 
Do you know why they're telling young preachers to plan your message in three seven-minute segments for a total of 21 minutes? Because that's the way television, a half an hour of television is designed for commercial every seven minutes for a total of program timing, 21 minutes. The professors say people won't listen to you. Understand this. When I was called of God, I was not called to be an entertainer. And if you've come here to be entertained, I will disappoint you. I was called of God to be one of Christ's ambassadors, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to speak His Word to you, to feed you a steady diet of God's Word, so that you might be able to take hold of the abundant life that Christ has come to offer us. And I take that charge very seriously. I'm reminded over and again as I approach this pulpit week after week after week, 20 years now, I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul to, to his son in the faith, Timothy, when he said, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and, and teaching. Listen to verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears So they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions. Aren't we there today, folks? So when we gather to worship, we should take time to listen, draw near and listen, because God is speaking. He's speaking through His Word. He's speaking through His servant. The living God is communicating. Just think about it. He's communicating with us. We ought to take time to listen. Command three, be still and stay calm. Verses two and three, don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart. God is in heaven. You are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. This, this was a complicated verse to me when I studied it. And, and I leaned upon the, the insights of the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, who passed away last year. Derek Kidner explains this command this way. He says, the dreams that Solomon is talking about here seem to be daydreaming, reducing worship to a mental doodling. A mental doodling. The light bulb went on for me. I understand what mental doodling is about. I bet you do too. Because some of you for the last 45 minutes or so have been engaged in it. You've allowed your mental meanderings to dominate the focus of your attention. In fact, let me ask you right now. Stop! What are you thinking about right now? Don't tell me, please. You'll discourage my heart. What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the movie you saw last night at Tinseltown? Are you thinking about where you're going to go for lunch when this is over? Are you thinking about the decision that you're going to have to make before this week is out? Are you thinking about the fly buzzing around the head of the person sitting in front of you? I remember as a child, (laughs) in that little old country church, we had square tiles up on the ceiling. I can't tell you the number of times I counted those tiles. 
If memory serves me right, there were 268. God's counsel is when you get into that mental doodling in worship, let it go. Put the distractions away. Shut it down. Be quiet. Stay calm. Stop striving. Because you get so preoccupied that you miss what God may want to say to you and do in you. And He'll just pass you by because you've been meandering all over the place. I think about the way um, for two years now I've been driving from here at the end of the day to our home on Floric Road in Edinburgh, the 27-minute drive on a good day door-to-door. And there are days when I am so lost in thought that I finally arrive in our driveway and push the garage door opener to lift the garage door and pull in the garage that I don't remember anything about my 27-minute trip home. I've forgotten the fact that I turned out of the church driveway, that I turned onto Grub Road, that I stopped at the stop sign at Creekside, that I stopped at the stop sign in, I hope I stopped in, in McCain, that I stopped at the light in the middle of McCain, that I passed Brandon Woods on my left, that I passed General McLean, that I stopped at the, the four corners in Edinburgh and made a right at Floric Road. It's all a blur to me because I, my, I'm lost in thought. I'm not focused on my journey. And that's the way some of us are in worship. Our minds and our hearts are a whirl in everything but thinking about God. Be still and be calm. I'm just going to give you the last two commands and then we're going to finish. The last two commands, command number four is make a commitment and keep it. I wish I had more time to talk about this. He talks about making a vow to God said it's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and break it. This is a word that the church needs today. In a day in which there are shallow commitments, a day in which it seems that we continue to break our promises to one another, we need this word today to keep our vows. Your worship is meaningless if you're not keeping your vows. You see, in God's eyes, if you make a vow at the altar to love your husband or your wife and give yourself to her, as Christ gave Himself to the church, then you, God expects you to keep that vow with His help. If you stand up here on a Sunday morning and you hold a little babe in your arms and you promise before God in this congregation that you will raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that you will rear them God's way, God expects you to keep that vow. It's not a promise that He expects you to break. So when you make a vow, make sure that you keep it. To serve, to give, to love, to honor your mother and father, to rear that child God's way, to live a life that is morally pure. Just think how different this church would be if every one of us in this room who have made one a vow at one time or another would intend to keep it and kept it. Unfortunately, our word doesn't mean much today. When you make a commitment, keep it. And then finally, fear God. I'm not going to talk much about fear God because in the last sermon of this series at the end of the month, Pastor Ben is dealing with chapter 12, and that's one of the main points of chapter 12 is to fear God. So I will not steal his thunder. But I don't know if you noticed it in our psalm reading today, Psalm 111, 
it said this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, then you live your life in reverential awe of God. You stand in awe of God, this God who saved us, this God who redeemed us. When we grasp who God is, the King of kings, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who made the galaxies, the one who sits enthroned and is forever praised by the cherubim and seraphim, when we remember who He is, I think naturally when we focus on God in our worship, it will change what our worship is all about. Because it's not about us but it's about Him. May God help us to be the kind of worshipers that He seeks who worship in spirit and in truth. Amen. Would you stand and let's pray.